Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Joe Lynham, and in the early hours of Tuesday, the 7th of April, these are the main stories. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in intensive care caused by the coronavirus. Germany's Angela Merkel says the coronavirus is the biggest threat that the European Union has ever faced. A New York politician warns that bodies may be buried in parks because the mortuaries have been overwhelmed by the outbreak. Doctors are preparing for a surge in cases. Also in this podcast, a coronavirus testing centre has been destroyed by citizens in Ivory Coast, fearing it may bring the disease to their area. I don't think this place is appropriate because it is an illness and we know how it spreads. So if we need to set up a hospital of this kind, they should put it outside the city. We start with the news that the British Prime Minister is in intensive care after his condition worsened in the course of Monday. Boris Johnson had been in hospital overnight on the advice of his doctors. The Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab is acting Prime Minister while Mr Johnson is being treated at St Thomas's Hospital in central London. I asked our political correspondent Rob Watson what was known about this. We know very little, Joe, so maybe it's worth just running over the sort of scant eight lines that Downing Street put out at around 8pm London time. And there are two things that I pick out from those eight lines, Joe. The first is that, uh, and I guess I may as well just read the quotation, over the course of this afternoon, the condition of the Prime Minister has worsened and on the advice of his medical team, he had been moved to the intensive care unit at the hospital. That was after being admitted there on Sunday evening. And then the last line, and again, worth reminding that this was at 8 p.m. Uh, and the line was that the Prime Minister remains conscious at this time. He has been moved to the intensive care unit as a precaution should he require ventilation to aid his recovery. But uh, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, Downing Street appear rather shell-shocked by this de- development and it is undoubtedly a, a profoundly grave moment, uh, not just for the Prime Minister but for his government and the country as a whole, Joe. What does it mean in political terms for who and how the country I- is run? We know that Dominic Raab, uh, the Foreign Secretary, is provisionally in charge but what more, what more do we need to know about that? It's a very good question. I, I mean, certainly he is. He has been designated by Mr Johnson as the man to chair the key meetings. We also know that you wouldn't be surprised to hear this, that the, the government has been split into four key committees to look at all various elements of the coronavirus crisis. But here's the thing, Joe. I think it's very difficult to see this as anything other as a, a, a very untimely blow to the government's handling of the crisis in so many ways. 
ways. I mean, certainly in terms of the optics, in terms of a government wanting to look as though it has a kind of grip on a situation for the most important member of that government to be in hospital is clearly a blow. But just in, in if you like, in sort of rather pragmatic ways, I mean, we, we understand that there have been perfectly understandably all sorts of tensions within, uh, within among ministers about how do you deal with a crisis of these immense proportions. Clearly, when you have disagreements, when there are tensions, it's up to the prime minister, a prime minister, to push things through to make those difficult decisions. Now, clearly, that is going to be much, much harder, even those those sort of structures are there, and even though Mr Raab has been designated. I mean, be in no doubt, this is the last thing that Downing Street, that the government would have wanted, of course. And what happens if... God forbid, uh, Boris Johnson's condition worsens uh, or, again, God forbid, he passes away. What sort of political process starts at that point? Well, of course, Britain does not have a written constitution, but I think here's what's acknowledged would happen, Joe, and that is that the cabinet... Uh, would choose a, a successor that successor would be recommended to the Queen and at some point after that the Conservative Party would elect a new leader and therefore a new Prime Minister Our political correspondent Rob Watson and as we were discussing the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab will deputise for the Prime Minister here's what he said when the news broke that Boris Johnson was in intensive care Well since Sunday the Prime Minister's been under the medical care of the team at St Thomas's Hospital after he was admitted with persistent coronavirus symptoms. During the course of this afternoon, the Prime Minister's condition worsened and on the advice of the medical team, he was moved in to a critical care unit. So in light of those circumstances, the Prime Minister asked me as First Secretary to deputise for him where necessary in driving forward the government's plans to defeat coronavirus. And um, as you'll know, uh, we, he's been receiving excellent care at St Thomas's Hospital. And we'd like to take this opportunity as a government uh, to thank uh, NHS staff up and down the country for all of their dedication, hard work and commitment in treating everyone who's been affected by this awful virus. With the Prime Minister now in intensive care, this is obviously an extremely serious situation. I mean, how, how worried should people be about his health and about who's in charge of the government? Well, the government's business will continue um, and the Prime Minister is in safe hands with a brilliant team uh, at St Thomas's Hospital and the focus of the government will continue to be on making sure at the Prime Minister's direction all the plans for making sure that we can defeat coronavirus and pull the country through this challenge will be taken forward. Are you confident, though, that the government is in, under control tonight? There's an incredibly strong team spirit behind the Prime Minister and making sure that we get all of the plans that the Prime Minister has instructed us to deliver to get them implemented as soon as possible. And that's the way we will bring the whole country uh, through the coronavirus challenge that we face right now. That's the Foreign Secretary Dominic Grab speaking to the BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg. And there's been plenty of reaction to the news that Boris Johnson is in intensive care. Here's President Trump speaking at a news conference at the White House. I also want to send best wishes to a very good friend of mine, and a friend to our nation, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We're very saddened to hear that he was taken into intensive care this afternoon, a little while ago. And uh, Americans are all praying for his recovery. He's been a really good friend. He's been really something very special, strong, resolute, doesn't quit, doesn't give up. Here's the former Conservative leader, Ian Duncan Smith. I'm shocked. I suspect, like anybody else, sir. He's a friend, and uh, you know, as prime minister, it, it's a it's a bad moment uh, in a sense. 
uh, because obviously for anybody, but particularly him, because I, I know him very well. So I'm, I'm deeply saddened, really, that, that this, it should have come to this. Uh, he's obviously worked like mad to try and get through this, but it's, it's not been enough so far. Just to remind you about the sequence of events which led us to where we are now with the British Prime Minister in intensive care. Eleven days ago, Boris Johnson said he would be self-isolating at home in Downing Street because he had begun to show symptoms of the coronavirus. At that stage, he was still chairing the daily government emergency meetings on the crisis via the internet. But on Sunday night, his doctors recommended that he be admitted to hospital because his symptoms had not disappeared. And again, the doctors intervened by late Monday afternoon. Mr Johnson was brought to the intensive care unit at St Thomas's Hospital here in central London. So what does being in intensive care mean? Why would a patient suffering from COVID-19 be admitted to an intensive care unit and what kind of treatment would they get there? Questions I posed to our health reporter, Lauren Moss. When a patient goes to intensive care, it's usually the most sickest patients. So the fact that the UK Prime Minister is in intensive care is an indication into how doctors see his condition and how serious it could be potentially. We are told that at this stage he has been transferred there as a precaution and that Boris Johnson is still conscious and isn't on ventilation at this current time. But COVID-19 is a disease which affects the lungs and the airways and it causes pneumonia, can make it difficult to breathe. Some patients may struggle to draw breath or even say certain words and they need oxygen then. Get oxygen into the lungs to circulate the blood and keep the organs working. And there are certain methods of ventilation that might be used in intensive care. Well, let's break that down. One that people might be familiar with is called intubation, which is when the cables go down your throat to force air into your lungs or oxygen into your lungs. We're not at that point yet. Sure, we're not. No, we've been told that the Prime Minister is in intensive care should he require ventilation. So this is still a precaution, but to even be there is an indication it is serious. His symptoms haven't improved in in more than 10 days. Now, like you say, there are different scales of intubation and it depends on how much help the patient needs. There's a broad spectrum of care here. The mechanical ventilators can work through either a patient wearing a mask or having a tube through the nose. And that's the option which tends to be recommended for patients with COVID-19. What is the recovery rate, Lauren? When will we know that the Prime Minister has got through most of this? When patients are admitted to intensive care, they can tend to be there for several days, for a few days. But what is important to note here about COVID-19 is that there there is no, no treatment or, or vaccine yet. And what doctors will need to do is treat the symptoms of coronavirus. So it's the breathlessness, the difficulty breathing, getting that oxygen moving around the body, like I mentioned. It isn't treating the coronavirus itself. The patient's body, the Prime Minister's body, has to do that itself. Our health reporter, Lauren Moss. Still to come, how to manage isolation. Tips from a NASA astronaut. I know how important stress management is for top performance. My interest is in helping people perform optimally in stressful situations. In the US, New York City has been hardest hit by the coronavirus with the healthcare system close to breaking point. In his daily briefing, the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, said almost 600 people in the state had died in the past 24 hours. And he warned there was still a real emergency. 
We are into uh, using BiPAP machines instead of ventilators. We're into splitting ventilators, turning two into one with two sets of tubes. We are into all backup plans that we had. Meanwhile, there's been a stark warning from a senior New York City council member who has warned that the city's morgues are now full. I spoke to the BBC's Neda Tofik in New York about a grim dilemma that they're facing. We've spoken a lot about how New York City is facing a shortage in healthcare workers and capacity at the hospitals, but the councilman, Mark Levine, who is the chair of the health committee in New York, is saying, look, the city is really past capacity with dealing with the number of dead. And so he said that a New York City park may have to be used to bury the dead in temporary plots. He said they would build a trench that could fit 10 caskets in it. Uh, and he said this really to kind of warn people that more help is needed in New York City to deal with this crisis. I mean, the mortuaries and hospitals are nearly full, as well as 80 refrigerated trucks that have come to New York City to help hold bodies. And that's the first time that's happened since 9-11. So he said this would be temporary, but he said it would be difficult for New Yorkers to see this. This is a plan they have to have in place in case they do keep seeing the death toll rising. But what has the mayor, Bill de Blasio, who has the final say in these things, what has he said about this idea? He seemed to be a little bit taken aback by being asked about this, to be honest. He said the city did have the ability to do that. This was obviously a part of their emergency planning that they do. But he said that there are no such plans at the moment uh, to put that in place. So trying to calm fears a little bit for the moment there, the mayor, obviously, in New York. But things are very bleak in New York City with coronavirus. Absolutely. I mean, the city is absolutely stretched. You had uh, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, today being a bit positive, saying that the death toll is um, at 599. Now, that's pretty much the the same number that was registered the day before. So he's suggesting that that could mean there's a plateau, but he really underscored that New York City is still very much in an emergency situation. I mean, they're having to split ventilators to use. They're having to use uh, BPAP machines instead of ventilators uh, to help with people. And they still need more healthcare workers to come volunteer in the city. So very much still a critical week in New York as they deal with the coronavirus. And that was Nedatovic in New York. Amid all the chaos and suffering caused by the COVID-19 crisis, false and misleading rumours being spread have compounded these problems. In Ivory Coast, disinformation about a proposed testing centre in the suburbs of the commercial capital Abidjan led to some locals destroying the site entirely. One protester said they weren't opposed to the centre, just the location. I don't think this place is appropriate because it is an illness and we know how it spreads. So if we need to set up a hospital of this kind, they should put it outside the city. There are places outside the city where they can set this up. Ivory Coast, like much of Africa, remains relatively untouched by COVID-19 with 261 confirmed cases and three deaths. I spoke to our Africa regional editor, Mary Harper, about the attack. What happened was that in a very crowded, quite poor suburb of Abidjan, the population there took offence to this 
new COVID-19 testing centre that was being built. They said it was being built much too close to their homes in this crowded, packed residential area. And in quite extraordinary scenes in the thick of night, groups of people literally went to this very big structure that was under construction and literally tore it apart with their bare hands. They were smashing bits of iron and other construction materials on the ground. It really was a scene of complete destruction. Could we assume that there had been some sort of disinformation out there that this testing centre was going to be far more significant and bring in potentially COVID-19 patients? That's what it seems to have, the rumour that seems to have been going around. And the health authorities, the health ministry, issued this very clear statement saying, look, this building is just to test people. It is not going to be any kind of treatment centre. But the population seems to have completely ignored that. And there seems to have been some form of mass hysteria. And they literally tore this building to the ground, which will obviously have significant consequences in Ivory Coast, which at the moment only has relatively few cases It's got 261 confirmed cases with three dead. But just as that very crowded residential area shows, if this virus is going to take off in Africa, it is going to be catastrophic because people simply can't practice these safety regimes like social distancing because they're crammed together. Lots of people don't have access to clean water and soap. I wonder whether some of this paranoia goes back to fears over the Ebola crisis five or six years ago, which did take root in West Africa. Certainly there seems to be a lot of parallels in terms of the way that people are reacting. There are lots of myths about it. For example, in Somalia, across in East Africa, people believe that it's only Chinese people who can get the virus, that Muslims are certainly completely immune. So you get those kinds of myths and misinformation, but you also get this fear which in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, communities would see Ebola health workers coming into the communities trying to save them, trying to protect them. But they believed that these health workers were actually coming into the communities to spread the disease. And it's possible that this coronavirus testing centre was seen in the same light. That's Mary Harper. Turkey is facing one of the world's fastest growing outbreaks of COVID-19 with more than 27,000 cases. So far, 574 people have died. The Turkish authorities have introduced new restrictions, including banning routine traffic in and out of all major cities. This report from Orla Geren. I'm just at the edge of Taksim Square in the centre of Istanbul. And from the mosque nearby, the call to prayer is echoing around. But these days, that call is followed by an announcement, don't come to the mosque. Just in front of me, they're disinfecting the area. Two orange vehicles, two men in white suits, washing the pavement. And the area is largely empty, a place that would normally be teeming. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is introducing tougher restrictions. He has cut off 31 cities, including Istanbul. Vehicles can't enter or leave without a permit. Schools, cafes and restaurants are already closed and flights are grounded. But President Erdogan says the wheels of the economy must keep turning. On the underground, passengers are being told to wear a mask 
but they aren't being told to stay home, apart from the under-20s and over-65s. So huge numbers are still travelling to work. Istanbul's mayor, Ekrem Imamoglu, is a leading opposition figure and a worried man. His city of more than 15 million people is worst hit by the virus. He wants a general lockdown before it's too late. When we counted, there were about 1.1 million people using public transport on a work day. And we have seen a lot of private cars out on the streets. Do you think it's crazy that this number of people are still being allowed to move around? It is, absolutely. I cannot sleep well in the last three weeks. I'm so concerned. I have many relatives that are over 60 and my grandparents are over 89, 90. Professor Emre Altindis is a molecular biologist and Turkish himself. I reached him on Skype at Boston College in the US. He's alarmed by the rapid spread of the virus in his homeland. The cases are increasing very rapidly, much more rapid than many countries, including Italy, Spain and US and China. So a surge is coming also in Turkey in the next two or three weeks. COVID-19 has already reached every corner of Turkey. Doctors here say precious time has been lost in this life and death battle. Orla Giren in Istanbul. The biggest challenge the European Union has faced. The words of the German Chancellor Angela Merkel as the bloc looks at ways of dealing with the financial, political and social fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. So what does Mrs Merkel want EU countries to do? It's a question I put to our economics correspondent, Andrew Walker. Well, as you say, the biggest challenge that the the bloc has faced in its entire history. She says that member states need to show more solidarity. And she is very much open to the idea of that solidarity taking the form of some significant amounts of pooled spending to try and generate some sort of recovery or perhaps or to deal with the health consequences of it. And she's talking about the idea of using the Eurozone's um, bailout agency that was created and heavily used during the financial crisis a few years ago, the European Stability Mechanism as one of the options for finding the money to do that. This could be quite significant, uh, couldn't it, this idea of corona bonds. Now, there's a meeting tomorrow of Eurozone leaders to discuss that issue. Tell us what corona bonds are and what they could do and whether it would work. Well, they're a kind of repackaging of an idea that was floated quite extensively during the financial crisis. And it's essentially the idea that um, that bonds, which are a way of borrowing in financial markets, would be issued collectively by the Eurozone countries, potentially, I suppose, even by the EU as a whole. But um, um, but most of these ideas of collective borrowing have focused on, on the Eurozone because, after all, those are countries that all use the currency that you would raise. It didn't go very far um, in the past because um, there was some resistance from some of the countries that were financially relatively strong, notably Germany, who felt that they might in effect be um, bailing out countries for um, or taking on the debts of countries whose finances were managed more irresponsibly. Now, the idea has very much come back as a way of raising money to finance Europe's response to this health crisis. But so far, at least, Germany and a few other other countries are still resistant to it. Mrs Merkel is keen on some other methods for financing, such
some sort of joint response, but doesn't seem to have warmed very much to this one, certainly not yet. Uh, Briefly, the French economy minister has been giving a dire warning about the extent of this downturn. Yes, indeed. Bruno Le Maire has been describing France as um, facing its its worst post-war downturn. Um, previously, the worst during the financial crisis was 2.2%, and it does look quite likely that it's going to be a good deal worse than that. And I think Mr Le Maire is bracing the French population for that. That's our economics correspondent, Andrew Walker. Life has changed for many of us throughout the course of this coronavirus pandemic. And while positive elements of life in lockdown can include things like more free time and cleaner air quality, it is a global event that's putting enormous strain on our mental health. But one former NASA astronaut has some practical tips to cope, as Morgan Eyre reports. Billions of us are feeling the stresses and strains caused by the coronavirus, from worrying about the health of our loved ones to potential loss of a job or earnings to spending prolonged periods cooped up inside with family or flatmates. It can seem like it's a never-ending family holiday on overdrive, except there's nowhere to escape. This disruption can trigger all sorts of problems, including mental health issues such as depression. One man who can relate to at least some of that is former NASA astronaut Jay Bucky, who flew on a 16-day Space Shuttle Columbia mission that orbited the Earth 256 times. I know how important stress management is for top performance. My interest is in helping people perform optimally in stressful situations. I'll be your guide for this program. Mr Bucky, who is now the director of the Space Medicine Innovations Laboratory at Dartmouth College in the US and his team, have created a now publicly available self-guided online training kit to cope with self-isolation. PATH, as the program is known, covers conflict resolution, mood management and self-assessment for stress and encourages people to practice techniques and brainstorm positive steps. Stress has different components. First, there are triggers. A trigger could be an event or something another person says or does. It could be something. Some of the other advice he gives is the importance between group time and private time. So while we do need our space sometimes, it's good not to allow ourselves to become too isolated. While it's not just astronauts but scientists on Antarctic missions who come across these sorts of problems, the rest of us are starting to get a taste of what isolation really feels like. That's the newsroom's Morgan Eyre. And that's all from us for now, but there will be an updated version of the Global News Podcast later. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, you can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast, all one word, at bbc.co.uk. I'm Joe Lynham. Until next time, goodbye.